The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight, we delve into the depths of Russia's occult, pagan, and mystical traditions. We are joined by Dr. Christopher McIntosh, a British-born writer and historian who has written extensively on the esoteric traditions of the West. He has a doctorate in history from Oxford University, a degree in German from London University, and a diploma in Russian from the United Nations Language School. In his book, Occult Russia, Dr. McIntosh takes us on a journey through the spiritual currents that have always been a part of the Russian soul. We'll examine the survival of ancient Slavic deities, pagan practices, and folk medicine tradition in modern Russia, including the indigenous pre-Christian customs of the Mari people and the shamanic traditions of Siberia. McIntosh also discusses a precursor to modern spiritual movements in the Silver Age of 1880-1920 and the impact of the Russian Revolution and spiritual esoteric groups. He will delve into the controversial Book of Veles, branded by some as a forgery and hailed by others as an epic chronicle of the Slavic people. I will explore the implications of the modern Russian spiritual and esoteric renaissance. We'll also explore the interface between spirituality and the arts and the unique qualities of the Russian language as a medium for the sacred. He is the author of many books, including Beyond the North Wind. Join us as we explore the rich and fascinating world of Russia's occult, pagan, and mystical traditions. Will Edgar Cayce's prediction of Russia as the hope of the world come true? Or will Russia remain, as Churchill famously stated, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma? Stay with us and find out. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hasselrich. And directly from Lower Saxony, North Germany, I'd like to welcome Dr. Christopher McIntosh. Hello, Dr. McIntosh, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you for inviting me. May I call you Christopher? Yes, call me Chris, in fact. Chris, thank you. Well, let's begin with asking you, what prompted you to write the book? And also, before we began, we started talking about your other book about Hyperborea. Tell me more about that. Yes, it's called Beyond the North Wind. Beyond the North Wind, thank you. Well, tell me how you got into all of this, your research, and what brought you here. Well, one of the things that's always invited always fascinated me as a writer is the interface between history and myths the way that history is always turning into myth and myth often drives history an, an example an example of that is national heroes the way national heroes become mythologized and the way in which um, historical events and historical figures often play a mythological role um, as though they were acting out some sort of myth, mythical script. So uh, this, is, this is something that's always fascinated me. And an example of this is the Hyperborea myth or legend, um, which goes back to ancient Greek times when a Greek mariner sailed out from the uh, Greek colony of Massalia, which, which is present-day Marseille, and sailed out through the Pillars of Hercules, the Straits of Gibraltar, out into the Atlantic, and then up into the far north, where he came to a land of mist and ice, which may possibly have been Iceland. We don't, we don't know exactly, but it could have been Iceland. And he called this 
uh, Hyperborea. Um, the, the name um, meaning beyond God Boreas, God Boreas being the god of the north wind. And um, this, this took hold, this captured people's imaginations and a great mystique of Hyperborea developed. Um, it, it was also, it, later on, it also came to be called Tula. Uh, the Romans called it Ultima Tula. And uh, so this, this mystique developed. And um, people began to speculate about a, 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 um, an advanced civilization that may have existed in a sort of freak temperate zone in the middle of the ice in the, in the Arctic region which um, existed for some thousands of years until the, um, the ice opened up and they, well, for, for clim climatic reasons, they um, emigrated out of the Arctic region and dispersed to various other parts of the world. Um, <clears throat> this is the legend. And this took hold in Russia and they developed a whole sort of school of thought that the Russians were, in fact, the descendants of the Hyperboreans, and that the Hyperboreans had possessed a superior sort of uh, civilization with um, uh, a, a superior wisdom tradition, which um, came, came to be thought of as, as linked with the Vedic tradition of India. There was a... Um, an Indian writer called Tilak, writing around the early 20th century, who wrote a book called The Arctic Home in the Vedas. Um, and this, this book became very popular in Russia. It's still, it's still um, available in a, in, in a Russian edition. And so there's this whole mystique in Russia of Hyperborea. And <clears throat> there have been a number of archaeological expeditions to the far northwest of Russia, bordering the Arctic Ocean. And there have been some interesting remains discovered there, like pyramids and paved roads and labyrinths and things of that sort, which seem to indicate uh, a prehistoric habitation in that region. Um, so, and there's, there's, a, there's um, a whole sort of school of, of art in Russia artists producing amazing visionary scenes of, of Hyperborean cities, Hyperborean ports with um, people traveling around in sleighs pulled by mammoths and, and so on. So it's, it's something that's really um, taken hold in Russia. So that, that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book about Russia after the Hyperborea book. Because I, I, I found that this, this list led me on to um, find out other interesting things about esoteric and mystical traditions in, in Russia. So that's really what led me to, to write the book. The word, I've heard it pronounced many ways. You say hyperborea. Some people call it hyperborea. What is yes. the correct pronunciation of the well, term? Well, I, I think you can say both, uh, actually. In doing research for your work, I found hyperborea tula obviously the ancient mythological city, but the interesting part uh, is that it was believed to be a paradise of eternal youth and happiness where the sun never set and the people lived in harmony with nature. Some people talk about Mount Maru. Some people talk about what's actually in the North Pole. And obviously they call it mythology or a mythological city. Yeah. Would it be possible that this actually existed in our distant past? Uh, well, it's it, it, yes. I, I go into this in in my book Beyond the North Wind. Um, there's there's no really direct evidence of um, there's 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 indirect evidence that there might have been such a civilization in the far north. One one of the problems is obviously that um, you think well, it would have been too cold that far north for a civilization to have existed. But the climate has changed uh, over the over time, and there are there are parts of, for, for example, Spitsbergen, which is only about 
700 miles from the North Pole. And vegetation has been discovered there, which uh, normally only grows in temperate zones. So there's, there's, there's evidence like that, that, that the Arctic region might have been a lot warmer at one point. And uh, there's some indirect evidence because there are, well, um, certain um, technologies, for, for example, if, if, for example, the, the um, megalithic remains that you find all over northern Europe, like um, Stonehenge in, in Britain and the Kalanish stones in the Hebrides, these um, are based on very advanced astronomical knowledge, astronomical and, and mathematical knowledge. And then when you consider the, for example, the technology that went into building the Viking ships, which are, are um, so perfectly designed that it would have, would have taken something like a, a thousand years of, of trial and error to, to produce such a design. So the, 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 these things seem to seem to point to there having been some precursor civilization, which um, then um, spread to other parts of the world and um, transmitted these these things that, that like the, um, the, the this knowledge that in, enabled the building of the megaliths and the the, the, the the Viking ships and so on. Well, not only Northern Europe, but what about Easter Island and the Moai in the middle of the ocean, hundreds, if not yes. thousands of miles from the closest land? Yes, that, that, that might be another, another piece of evidence, yes. In your book, you delve into the depths of Russia's occult, pagan, and mystical traditions. Can you speak of the significance of these traditions in Russia and Russian culture and history? Yes. Well... There's, there's always been a strong pagan folk culture in, in Russia, which has existed in a rather kind of uneasy relationship with the Orthodox Church. <clears throat> Russia became converted to Orthodoxy in the 10th century and um, be became basically um, a, a Christian country. But the, the, old, the old pagan... Um, the old pagan ways lived on in 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 folk traditions, in the in the belief in nature spirits, in the belief in household gods, and, and so on. And um, although there was although there was this um, opposition from the from the church, somehow they 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 achieved a kind of modus vivendi, and many people. Uh, practice practice what is called dvoje verie, which which means dual belief. So they they manage somehow to be both Orthodox Christians and um, still observe the old pagan ways. Well, that that situation. Well, also I, I should mention there are uh, uh, communities um, pe peoples in Russia like the Mari uh, who have their, their own republic. In the northwest of Russia, who uh, well, mo most of them have by now become Orthodox Christians, but there is a certain percentage of them who have remained true to the old pagan ways, and uh, they're now enjoying something of a revival. But um, there's been a big resurgence of paganism, or neo neo paganism, you could say, after the collapse of communism and the um, sort of the, the um, weakening of the monopoly of the, the church over the spiritual life of the country. So there are now, now various um, pagan movements operating. And um, for, for example, uh, there are pre-prehistoric sites. There's one, one particularly famous one called Arkaim in the Urals, which is sort of the equivalent of Stonehenge in England. And every year at midsummer, thousands of people go there to, to celebrate the, the, the um, 
summer solstice. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the summer... The summer ritual is is called Ivan Kopala, uh, Kopala being the the god of of vegetation and and for fertility and the harvest, and he has be, he has been sort of co opted by the by the church. So um, the, the the church calls this festival Ivan Kopala, John Kopala, linking linking it with the feast of Saint John. So um, there's there, and there, there are other uh, pagan deities that have been co-opted in a similar way, uh, r- rather like in in Western Europe, where where um, many of the old pagan deities became Catholic saints. And um, as I say, there's there's quite a big pagan movement. There are now um, pagan priests who perform pagan weddings, pagan funerals, and and so on pagan rites of passage. How did all that change after the Bolsheviks took over in the early 20th century? Uh, well, the, the Bolsheviks, of course, were basically atheistic and um, basically opposed to any form of, of religion. But it took, it took some time. The, 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 after, the, after the revolution, their, their their first target was really the, the Orthodox Church, and uh, they went very sy- systematically about uh, about crushing the the church, um, destroying churches and closing seminaries and um, <clears throat> arresting and murdering priests and so on. But um, <clears throat> it it took longer for the Bolsheviks to um, get round to. <clears throat> Attacking other forms of religion, for for example, for a long time, the the sham, sh- sh- shamans, the shamanic communities in um, in Siberia, were le- were left alone. Um, and um, in- interestingly enough, there were various esoteric and occult groups that survived for quite some time after the after the nineteen seventeen revolution. In fact, right through to the the 1920s. Um, But um, after Stalin um, became leader, uh, things really uh, um, were really tightened up. And um, I think by by about by about the 1940s, the the whole sort of pagan esoteric spiritual scene had. Had virtually been crushed or, or gone underground, <clears throat> um, and it wasn't until the 1960s, uh, around the 1960s, with some some liberalisation, that um, that um, th- these movements started to come out into the open again. And well, we... of course, after 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 Perestroika, after Gorbachev and Perestroika, um, then. Um, it, it, it all it, it all opened up, and um, then uh, <clears throat> after the final collapse of communism, um, there was a, a great upsurge of every, every kind of re- religion and form of spirituality you can imagine, and um, that, that's one of the, the interesting things about present day Russia because there was this. There was this great hunger after the starvation, after the spiritual starvation diet of the communist years. There was this great hunger, uh, for the spiritual hunger, uh, because the Russians are um, basically a very spiritual people, and um, the communist years were completely unnatural for them. So, I, I, I in, in my book, I. Compare, I, I um, compare the situation to a river which was long icebound, and then then there came a thaw, and the, the river started moving again, and uh, that, that's what we're seeing today. All we have to do is look at the map of Russia to see how vast it is, even with former Soviet territory not being part of Russia anymore. And by the way, I remember 
when communism stopped in that part of the world. It feels like yesterday, but it's when you look at it, it's, it's, it's more than 40 years ago, but it feels yes. like yesterday. Yes, but right. Russia is often described as vast and mysterious. How do you yeah. see this sense of vastness and mystery reflected in the country's spiritual and esoteric traditions? Uh, well, it's very vast, uh, not only in terms of its size. I mean, it stretches right from the Baltic to the Pacific. It's the, it's the largest landmass of any country in the world. And um, it's, it's, but it's not only its geographical extent, but the, the, the vast uh, plurality of um, different um, populations and, and ethnic groups within the, the borders of Russia, um, from the, the Mongolian populations in, in the Far East, the um, Turkic, Turkic populations in the South, Germanic, the, the, the Germanic um, element com, coming in um, from the, the Vikings who, who originally uh, who established the, the, the earliest dynasty, in fact, and um, the, the Slavic populations. So uh, there's, there are many, many different ethnic groups and, and many different religions. And, and of course, they were, for about two and a half centuries, they were occupied by the Mongols um, under the so-called so Tartar yoke, who, who um, left, um, left their legacy uh, on, on Russia. So this... Uh, It's a it's a tremendously rich mixture, and um, so that, that and that gives it a special kind of quality because the Russians are, in a sense, they're they're not European. They're neither they're neither European nor Asian. They're something in between, and this is this is one of the things that gives them their uniqueness. This is why I don't understand certain countries like Poland and some Slavic rooted countries that join the want to join the EU when they're really not part of it. They're more on the east side, aren't they? Well, yes, but there's um, there's an interesting sort of division that goes right through eastern right through uh, Eastern Europe. If you, you can draw a line sort of down from Roughly from the border of Finland right down to to the Black Sea, and um, on one side, for, for, for example, just taking religion on the on the west side of this line, um, the, the populations are Catholic or tend tend to be Catholic, whereas on the on the eastern side they're Russian Russian Orthodox, and there are so the, the, there does seem to be some some kind of division there. It's, it's also reflected in other things like music, musical traditions, uh, folk song traditions, um, and, and, and language as well. So there does, there does seem to be um, something special about the Russians uh, to, to the east of that line. You mentioned the beauty or the, of the Orthodox liturgy and yes. the... Uh, the sound of a brass band in a palace near St. Petersburg. And oh, yeah. some of the experiences that stand out in your mind, can you speak to the role of music and art in Russia's spiritual and esoteric traditions? Music and art. Um, well, the, the Orthodox religion has obviously had a very profound influence and the language, the, the um, There's a language, there's a liturgical language called Old Church Slavonic, which is sort of comparable to what Latin was um, when there was still a Latin mass in the Catholic Church. So the, the Old Church, although it has, it, it's um, not that dissimilar to, to modern Russian, but um, has, has certain important differences. Um, and that's the language of, of the liturgy, and so the 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 the, um, the Russian language has certain very special qualities. I've, I have a chapter in my, my book about the language, 
And it, it, it's um, a very, very powerful language for liturgy. And it can be, it can be chanted in a, in a, in a way that um, Western languages can't. I mean, for, for example, the, the, word, the word for God, the, it, it, if you're addressing God in Russian, the, the word you use is Boże, it's the, the, the vocative of the word Bog, Bog meaning God. So you can, you can chant the word Boże, Boże, in that very sort of resonant way. Um, so when you go into a, an Orthodox liturgy, you feel that um, the, the, the chakras, as it were, are being, being activated. Almost and, like an om. Yes, almost like an om, like a mantra. It's almost yes. like a mantra. Um, so the, the chakras, the, sort of the centers in the human body, are, act, are being activated in a, in a much more powerful way than, than one experiences in um, a, a Catholic or Protestant liturgy. So when you, when you attend, uh, I'm, I'm not an Orthodox Christian myself, but I love the Orthodox liturgy. And um, when, you go, when you attend an Orthodox liturgy, you feel you're really touching the soul of Russia. It's, it's immensely powerful. And um, there's a very, very beautiful musical tradition. There's, uh, there's always a very beautiful choir um, in the um, in the liturgy, so that's uh, that's one aspect. Um, what what else can I say about a quick parenthesis, if if you don't mind me interjecting? Yeah. You open a door, and this might not be related to your to your studies, but when I look at the ancient cathedrals, even in Russia and Europe, and you mm. see the way they were built, which can no longer be replicated. And they have the organs and they have the way the, the structures resonate with sound and vibration and cymatics and all that and the bells. Yeah. It makes you wonder if there's a lot that hidden knowledge that we no longer are capable of understanding. And back in those days, and you probably have heard the term Tartaria floating around the Internet lately. So it, it almost makes you wonder if things were different hundreds of years ago and when you went to church and the singing and the and the chanting as you said it's almost like a mantra yeah. that's no longer around for a reason what is your opinion of this well i, th I think it's it's still there actually um i mean another an another aspect of it is the the tradition of the icons there are always many many icons in a in an orthodox church and people are constantly coming and going Praying at these icons, lighting candles, and so on. You mean like saints? And yes, yes, saints and and um, figures of Christ and the Virgin Mary and so on. And um, these icon, the making of these icons is um, a spiritual process for the the, the 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 artists who make them. They they have they um, go through through certain certain um, Certain sort of sort of uh, a process of inner preparation, even even fasting and so on, before they they actually make these icons, and so that the icons have a they have a definite power, the a radiation, and there's another another aspect to the liturgy in the Orthodox churches. There's the the the, the consecration of the Eucharist <clears throat> takes place behind a screen called the iconostasis. So the congregation doesn't actually see the, the, uh, the consecration. And so the, the, the priests are coming and going um, through a door in the, in the iconostasis. And the real sort of, um, the most sort of powerful moment of consecration takes place out of sight of the congregation. So you might, you might think, well, that's, that's a strange sort of, tradition but the thing is that this element of concealment and mystery is one of the things that gives the orthodox liturgy its tremendous power now why why do you think that is i mean just comparing it with catholicism where it's all in the well in the open where you can see the consecration why do you think that is i think that um the, the element of mystery is 
something very powerful. Um, it, it's 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 hard to it's hard to explain rationally, but um, it 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 it, add, it adds an ex, an extra to, uh, an extra sort of potency to the to the to the ritual. And obviously, things have transformed. I, I remember seeing all the, the photographs of during the Bolsheviks and the destruction mm. of the beautiful churches. But I oh, believe yeah. they have a lot of them have been rebuilt at a record oh, pace, yes, aren't they? Yes. Oh yeah, many many thousands have been rebuilt and very very beautifully rebuilt. Um, so um, I mean that's. One of the things that, that I find I find very moving that um, this this religion, which the Bolsheviks attempted to completely crush, has um, has been revived, and I mean that that's proof of the immense spiritual strength of the Russians that that, um, that their faith was kept alive during all those years. Well, obviously, Russia is known for its depth of soul, the warmth. The passion oh, yeah. and, and the viscerality. How do these qualities play a role in the country's spiritual and and esoteric movements? In the esoteric movements, well, I I, I sometimes <clears throat> when when you think of all that the Russians have been through in their history, I mean, it, it's been a very they've been through periods of tremendous violence, and cruelty, and and turmoil, and um, when you think that all, all, of all that they'd been through, it, uh, Russia's rather like a a sword that has been forged in a tremendously hot furnace, and it's it's come out immensely strong. Um, and and the, the strength is is this spiritual strength is one of the things that you feel when you go there, and of course. Um, to 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 uh, to be to be a spiritual person during the Bolshevik years uh, could be very dangerous. So um, religion religion was something that was taken very seriously and and went very deep. I remember years ago I interviewed a Russian lady hmm. about a totally unrelated subject, but I did hmm. have a personal conversation with her, and I asked her, maybe because of ignorance, but I asked her, why is it that when I talk to a lot of Russian people, especially the females, they seem mm. to be very serious, very somber, strong personalities, but mm. they have this air of unhappiness sometimes. And she said, that's very simple because we have been at war for so long. We lose children. We lose husbands. We lose brothers all the time. So this yeah. is what comes down generation to generation. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yes, I, I, I would. Um, They they have developed a way of of living with suffering. This is this is one one of their characteristics. They've lived with suffering so long that they have they have this this way of of um, of, of dealing with it of, of accepting accepting it. And one of, one of the ways they do that is by. Is, Is, is by combining it with humor. This is this is something very Russian. Um, I mean, if you Russian humor is is often it is often a combination of sadness. It's often combined with sadness. I mean, if if you read um, a, a book like uh, Gogol's Dead Souls, which is one of the great Russian classics, it's um, on on the one hand. Quite sort of gloomy and melancholy and, and cynical, but on, at the same time hilariously funny. And uh, you know, I've I've heard so many so many jokes from Russians that that, that have have this combination. It's a it's a dry humor mixed with melancholy, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, in your opinion, what makes Russia unique in terms of its spiritual and esoteric traditions? And by the way, just to finish the question, I've I've done research about the the Irish, the British, the Germans occult traditions, and I'm really new at when it comes to Russia. Yeah, um, I think um, one one of the things about Russia is that 
they they still believe in absolute values like um, truth and beauty and and wisdom and so on. And you can see this in the in the arts in um, the the arts and literature and and film and so on, where um, the um, art, artists and writers and um, people in the in the cultural realm are expected to convey a spiritual vision so um, for, for, i mean this is this is certainly true of the great russian writers like tolstoy dostoevsky and so on right right down to writers of the present day like or, or, or modern times like solzhenitsyn these uh, these these um writers were read um in order to gain inspiration and a moral message. And you find the same thing in um, film, for example. I, I, I not long ago read an article by, or an, an interview with the film director Tarkovsky, Andrei Tarkovsky, who was talking about beauty, and he was, he was saying that it was the role of the, it should be the role of the filmmaker to convey beauty. And the, the trouble the trouble with an artist like Picasso was that he had, instead of instead of nurturing and promoting beauty, he had betrayed it. Um, and I think, I mean, how how many Western film directors would would talk like that about beauty? You know, beauty is is um, is something that is not the whole concept of beauty is not not really writ large in in Western culture. Um, you open so another door there, if I might interject. You open another door here that I'd like to address and dissect this. I recently yeah. interviewed a a person whose family escaped communism three times in their lifetime, uh, Kate yeah. Rubicek. And mm-hmm. she was telling me that when she, she was born and raised in Australia, but she was telling me how when she was at the university, she was studying arts. But then mm-hmm. she realized that these modern movements have changed to the point where beauty is now inverted. All this abstract, yes, yes. they call the abstract, oh, this is beauty. But all these other magnificent pieces of work from hundreds of years ago, that's not beautiful. It's almost like they want to change what was old and beautiful to the opposite. I, I really want to know your take on this. Yes, I, 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 I agree. It's, it's, it's almost as though there is a kind of cult of ugliness where um, you know, students in art colleges are told that art has nothing to do with beauty. And you know, art, art gallery, an art gallery can display a, you know, a, heap, a, a heap of old rusty bicycles or something and uh, claim that that's a work of <laughs> <Right>. art. <laughs> um, same with the so, statues. They're removing beautiful statues and replacing them with these abstract things that you don't even know what they are. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is, you, you know, you, you, you mentioned statues. I mean, I'm, I'm horrified by the things that are happening in cities, you know, cities like London, where I used to live, where um, a hideous... Work of, a so-called work of art has been put up in Trafalgar Square, which looks like a sort of a sort of a blob of ice cream with a, a sort of blob of jam on the top of it. Yeah, um, com- completely ruining the townscape. Um, where, whereas in Russia, there's um, a very interesting school of architects who are working with with traditional forms. I mean, there are obviously there. Russia has its fair share of, of hideous modern uh, urban development as well, but um, there, there are these architects who are working with traditional forms, and I mentioned some of them in my book. Well, you mentioned the hideous architectural designs now, but that that to me sounds like that's during the time of communism. You see that all over Eastern Europe during the time of the communists, these squared, soulless, you see them, yeah, exactly. and they're just cookie-cutter, same thing, everywhere. Yeah, exactly, yes, yes. Well, that, that, that's what happens when you have a, a completely materialistic 
philosophy that has no no conception of the, the spiritual or, or, or eternal values. You know, every, everything is just um, utilitarian. Let's talk about Edgar Casey. He predicted that oh, yeah. Russia would be the hope of the world. We've heard this for decades now, and we discuss this all the time. How do you interpret this prediction, and do you see it coming true today? Yeah, well, um, one of one of the things uh, that's, a, that's quite quite a big subject. But one of the things I've, I've observed about Russia is that there's a um, an interaction between uh, the science and spirituality. Uh, for example, there are um, there's, a, there's an interesting cooperation going on between um, scientists and, and and doctors with the shamans, the, tr the traditional shamans in Siberia. And um, well, there was um, one one particular woman who was working with uh, a woman doctor who was working in a, a psychiatric clinic in, in Siberia, and got to know a woman shaman in in one of the villages there. And this this woman shaman taught her certain ways of um, of treating. Um, People with with uh, psychological disturbances like schizophrenia, and um, this doctor had one patient who was suffering from, from severe schizophrenia, which made it impossible for her to live a normal life. And she applied the technique that she'd learned from the shaman, which um, cured this this schizophrenia to the point where this woman was able to go back home and. And live a normal life again. So uh, uh, that's just just one example. And there's uh, an institute in Novosibirsk. I think it's it's got a rather cumbersome name. It's called something like the the Institute for Cosmoplanetary Anthrop Anthropoecology, something of that sort. Who are also working with with the shamans, and um, they have. Um, they've been working with a, a device called the Kozirev mirror, which is um, it's a kind of it's a kind of cylinder made of shiny metal, um, and if you if you put two people in two of these these mirror, mirrors, even thousands of miles apart, they're able to communicate telepathically with each other. And people have had very remarkable experiences in inside these inside these mirrors. Um, and there's a, an interesting movement in in Russia, the the Cosmist movement, which was, goes back to the late 19th century, with a man called um, uh, Fyodorov, Fyodorov, who um, had uh, what what you might think was a completely crazy idea. That um, you could reanimate all human beings who have ever lived in the past by, by reanimating their cosmic dust, um, and this would create create such a, a, a problem of, of accommodating all these people that um, his solution was to to turn the the Earth loose from the solar system and use it as a spaceship to colonize other. Other planets. Well, it, it all sounds completely crazy, but uh, Fyodorov had a, a follower and pupil called Tsiolkovsky, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, and he, he basically gave Tsiolkovsky a, a course in mathematics and physics. And Tsiolkovsky then went on to become a brilliant math mathematician in physics and rocket engineer and he did all the all the calculations that enabled the russian space program to get off the ground um the, the, for the, the sputnik to be launched and um Gagar, uh, yuri gagarin to um be be launched into space so um that's that's an example of how 
there's, there's this kind of in, interface between the visionary realm, the, the, the visionary and, and spiritual realm, and the scientific realm. And that's, that, that is also something very Russian. And um, it's, it's bound up with the, with, with the idea that we're, we're all connected to a field which, um, which connects, us, connects us to the whole cosmos. So if, if you're a scientist, you're not, you're not just operating in, in a vacuum. You're, you're, you're the whole time connected with, the, with this cosmic, cosmic field. Um, and now, th th these, are, th these are some of the things that I think um, that we can learn, that we can learn from the Russians. And I think this, um, this, is, this is perhaps one of the things that Casey was, was thinking of when he, when he made that prediction, this kind of holistic way, way of thinking. I don't know why the name Marina Bopovich uh, comes to mind, but she was one of those others that was interested in all these other topics that in this part of the world we don't discuss. But as you said, the cosmonauts, the, 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 their space program was so much more advanced, in my opinion, than yeah. the Americans. And all of a sudden, they just, the United States allegedly took over. That's a, a topic for another program. But we yeah. immediately took over and we beat them to the moon. What is your opinion of that? Well, um, what, what is my, what, what is my opinion of the fact that America got to the moon first? Yes. I, <laughs> I don't think it's of any very great significance. Um, I mean, uh, what, what's, what, what I find interesting about the Russian space program is that it was, it was linked with this vision, um, which I, I think um, I, the, the American space program was simply a, a technical feat. Um, you see what I mean? I do. I'm just saying that the, the Russians were so much ahead of us, and all of a yeah. sudden, in such a short amount of time, we overtook them. Yeah. Well, um, I think the, the, the U.S. obviously had, they had, they had technical resources and um, financial resources that the Russians didn't have at that time. Not only that, but also Operation Paperclip. I believe we we get they they got their share of engineers and scientists from the Nazis, right? But we we get the majority, I believe. The, the the majority. Yes, during Operation Paperclip, after the the Nazi regime died after World War no, II, no. we get Operation Paperclip that brought here hundreds of engineers and scientists from oh, the yeah. Nazi oh, party. Yes, like, like Werner von Braun. Werner von Braun, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Now, from a Western medical standpoint, what you just said, the use of shamanic interventions for mental conditions obviously goes against the fundamental principles of psychiatry. Some will say would say here in this part of the world, and that's why it's not accepted in this region. But I'm glad to hear that in that part of the world, they still accept this, which mm. has been around for thousands of years. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And... Um Folk, folk medicine generally, um, I mean, when I was in Russia, I, I met one of the, the village folk healers um, who are very, very common um, in, in many, of the, many of the villages in, in Russia, in country districts, there would be a, a, a wise woman sometimes a wise man who would be the, the local healer and he or she would have a very profound knowledge of all the herbs and plants and, and, and so on growing in the region and, and their, their, their um, medicinal properties. And um, this, this, this again is something that has it probably hasn't died out completely in the West, but it's uh, certainly much rarer, that, that kind of folk medical tradition. You're right that the West has lost 
its quote-unquote vital will in yeah. comparison to Russia. And we were discussing the art. In fact, just a personal story, I, I regret the fact that COVID happened because I had plans to go to St. Petersburg. I've oh, always really? wanted to go to that part of the world because it fascinates me, the architecture, the way it looks. It's, it hasn't been changed. But uh, in comparison to Russia and, and this part of the world, can you elaborate on this? And what qualities of Russia do you think have contributed to this? Uh, contr contributed to what? Well, you're right that the West has lost its vital will. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, how shall I... How shall I put it? In Russia, one one has the sense that the, the Russians have a sense of mission, which goes back a very long way. It, it goes right back to the um, very early days when they adopted the Orthodox religion, and they came to think of themselves as the third Rome. The, the first Rome being the Rome on the Tiber, the second one being Constantinople. And the third one being Russia, because Constantinople was overrun by the Turks in the in the fifteenth um, century, and um, ceased to be the the spiritual center that it, it had been up to then. So the Russians then thought of themselves as the new Rome, and that they had this kind of mission to become um, a sort of um, a spiritual light. For, for a spiritual beacon for the world, and they've always they've always had this this tradition. Um, and it's, it's mingled with a, a millenarian tradition, the, the the idea of a a new age. Communism was was one sort of form of that. I think because because they had this tradition, it was it was easier for them to accept the the, the communist philosophy and. Uh, be, be led astray by it, although although it was a dead end, but they've <coughs> they've re retained this set, this sense of mission, and they they believe that they have something to to offer the world. This, they, they, they believe in in themselves in a way that the West no longer does. Um, I think the. Uh, The, the the West at the, at the moment is um, doesn't it's 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 um, it's lost its it's lost its sense of orientation and it doesn't know doesn't know really where it's going. Well, I think I know where it's going. It's going backwards in a very fast fast pace. And you mentioned Rome, and again, this is not part of the subject at hand. But you know, a lot of people say, you know, what's the new Rome today? And I think that's a very subjective topic. But I think Rome has been moving west all the time. You know, yeah. Rome, then London, Paris, New York City, Washington, and some people yeah. might even call it Beijing today. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So when it comes to the profound experiences you had with while researching your book, mm. tell me some of the interesting factoids that you found. Well, one of the interesting experiences was in Moscow going to Lenin's tomb, um, where where Lenin's tomb in Red Square, where I I lined up in in front of the entrance and was asked to remove my hat before I went in, and um, gradually processed into this inner sanctum, this, this dim inner sanctum with the Spotlit body of Lenin lying there, um, guarded by men in uniform, and it, it was almost as though I was seeing the the last little relic of the communist cult. After communism had died out everywhere, there was this this small group of acolytes um, guarding the body of of, of the founder. So that that was a, that was an interesting experience. What year? What year was that? That was, I think, 19, it was nineteen ninety two. I think. Oh, shortly after the fall. It was shortly after the the fall of communism, which w was actually quite a good time to go, because everything, all all the infrastructure was was in place. Everything worked. 
um, and um, it, it, it wasn't it hadn't yet, it hadn't yet descended into the chaos that, that that came later on. Well, there was a gap in the middle after it fell, but how do you compare it to now? Oh, well, well, now I, I, I haven't, haven't been there for a very long time, but I, I have Russian friends and I'm, I'm in touch with Russia. Um, I think things have improved a lot um, in the past few years. I, I get the, I get that impression. Um, um, this in, in, <clears throat> un, un, unemployment has um, declined. Um, people feel people feel reasonably secure. Um, standard standard of living is reasonable. There's there's a very flourishing cultural life in in Russia, and uh, so <clears throat> I think it's uh, I think it has got better. One thing so, I have to one thing yeah. I have to say about Russia, and I don't mean to bring this up because a lot of people, uh, especially we decided not to talk about a certain subject. But one thing I like about Russia is that they don't put up with the decadence that we're seeing rising here in this part of the world. And that yeah, preserves yeah. their culture. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how do you see the future of spiritual and esoteric movements in Russia? Do you think it's thriving or no? Oh, I think it's it's thriving. It's very much thriving. Um, I think... Um, there is slight danger that the church will um, make things difficult for these these esoteric and neo-pagan movements and so on. But um, at the moment, I think it's it's a very lively scene. Uh, I, I would <laughs> I would love to go back there when when it becomes possible. You mentioned communism dying. Yeah, but obviously that depends on who you ask. Some would argue that communism is still alive and growing in certain parts of the world, while others would argue that it's in decline, especially in the West. I disagree. I think communism is rising in the West and dying in the East. Now the question is, do you see communism dying or evolving into a technocracy where technology is helping a new rise of communism? Oh, this is this is getting into a, a, a difficult area where um, it's it's difficult for me to express an opinion. Um, That's okay if you don't feel comfortable answering the question. The reason why I asked you is because it preceded another question I have for you yeah, to yeah. discuss the relationship between traditional spiritual practices and the impact of technology and the internet. On spiritual and esoteric movements in Russia, yeah, um, well, the the impact of the internet, the in, internet, the internet is is um, it's a bit of a two edged sword um, as regards the spiritual and esoteric realm, because um, you, you you you're confronted with um, an, an overload of of information um, of um, you know to to to, to, to sift out the, the things of real real value from the, from this enormous plethora of of information that's being thrown out the whole time is is difficult and um, it, it, it's a culture it's a culture of the the soundbite, you know, where um, because because one because one's attention because you're conditioned for your attention span to become smaller and smaller all the time, um, you, you you're not you're not reflecting in depth on the the things that you're receiving through through the internet. Um, that, that that's the, the the negative side. The, the positive the positive side is that. Um, if you're even if you're a member of a, a small minority, the in, the internet gives you the possibility to make contact with kindred spirits anywhere in the world. So you can be you can be a member of a small a small religious movement and be in contact with 
other other members of that movement th throughout the globe. So so this um, enables enables small movements to to flourish that um, you know in a way that would would not have been possible in in the days before the internet. We have to take our one and only break. But oh, before yes. we before we take the break, I have to say this. You mentioned the attention span. I wholeheartedly agree. Every year I see the attention span going down, down, down to just a, a few seconds. And this is on purpose, in my opinion. People are not reading. They don't learn about their history. And this is being done yeah. on purpose. The same with the destruction of sovereignty, of culture, of the unique yeah, traits yeah. that make a nation unique. And this is why I think what you see in Russia, they're preserving the culture. They don't want the decadence of the West. And we'll discuss yeah. it when we come back. Also, I want to ask you when we come back, how do you believe these spiritual and mystical traditions of Russia have been affected by globalization, which is the the nouveau term that we hear on the news yeah. all the time now? Now, how can people buy the books, all your books, and learn more about your work, Chris? Uh, well, they, they, can, they can go to my website. Um, I'll give you, shall I give you the address? Please, please spell it, yes. All right, it's... Um, www.osgard that's spelt O-Z-G-A-R-D dot net N-E-T www.osgard.net and um, that will give you information about um, <clears throat> my books and other activities um, the, the books are all, are all available through Amazon and, and other, other, other outlets Wonderful. We have one more hour to come with Dr. Christopher McIntosh. This is Mel Hasselbeck, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Subscribe today. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store. For Focus Life Force Energy, get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share the video. Click on the notification button to be alerted when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know.